We stormed no time-worn castle walls, nor camped in grand old marble halls. But on the endless roll of fame, by deeds of blood we placed a name that will remain till times no more, the honored, brave Fifth Army Corps. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Welcome to War of the Rebellion Stories of the Civil War, I am your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And today, we are reading Contributed Articles by Surviving Comrades, Battles, Sieges, and camp life. The Colonel's Tribute by Colonel Edward J. Allen In the publication of the many volumes that have been issued detailing the histories of the companies, regiments, and other organizations which made up the Union Army, it has been usual to preclude such histories by a statement of all the causes that led up to the war and give a condensation of the whole political outlook. The 155th Regiment of Pennsylvania Volunteers was a splendid type of the soldiers of the war and was in itself an exemplification of the volunteer system and a proof of its great value. Upon this system rests absolutely the defense of the Republic in land service. In a military service given in time of war, without compulsion, there must be strong, conscientious convictions to induce the self-abnegation involved in the perils and hardships of warfare. In the War of the Rebellion, there was thus created a patriotic body of men which had not its parallel in this century. In its ranks there was no distinction of station or caste, wealth or poverty, party or creed. The history of such an organization is more than the itinerary of marches made, more than a list of battles fought, more than a record of its killed and wounded. Its marches were the triumphal forward movement of freedom. Its battles, contests in which the right struggled with a great and powerful wrong, its dead were the martyrs consecrated to liberty. Its wounded were the living proof of what men dare for humanity and its ultimate triumph, the kindling anew of the great beacon, that with a more glorious effulgence illumined the whole earth and lit the way to a larger hope and a fuller life. When the survivors of these brave men were mustered out after four years of war and participation in thirty-two battles, there was no interregnum between the soldier and the citizen. 
but at once they resumed their old or new vocations and developed into all that makes life memorable. From their ranks came men noteworthy in all ways in which men labor. Judges who sat worthily on the bench. Attorneys successful in the law. Surgeons eminent in their profession. Literatures. Chemists. Civil engineers. Journalists. Businessmen whose abilities made them millionaires. Able mechanics. Competent men in public office and in places of trust. Bankers, ministers of the gospel, financiers, husbandmen, and in all places among good citizens. Thus both in the field and in ways of peace, demonstrating their ability. And greater and nobler than all was their putting aside the soldier completely and utterly, and returning to the simple citizenship from which they came, with unimpaired conceptions of right and increased respect for law and order and a fuller appreciation of the duty they owed to the great nation they had guarded so well. Rome gave to the admiration of mankind a Cincinnatus. The Great Republic offers hundreds of thousands of Cincinnati. Such men could not serve as soldiers for the mere love of adventure. Their previous environment has made them averse to war. They had been reared where, quote, Peace went tinkling with the shepherd's bell and singing with the reaper, unquote. The response to President Lincoln's later call to arms was not an impulsive one. It was an issue joined that had long been pending. It was in the air and required no justification. It was the grandest movement the nation had ever known. Its climax was not foreseen, but there was no other ending possible. That the end that came was the best for all is without dispute. Future history will give the Union soldier fuller appreciation and praise, and their names will be recorded as among those who, quote, led all the rest, unquote. O oh, veteran, in whose gleaming eyes the glory of the past doth shine. In coming years the grandest prize, a nation's reverence, shall be thine. Breaking Home Ties By Private Thomas E. Morgan, Company E The writer's home in August 1862 was West Elizabeth, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. A few days before enlisting, when lacking four months of being seventeen years of age. The writer, with six other boys of Elizabeth Township, got into a slight difficulty, and was arrested for picking berries on forbidden ground. The squire, before whom the charge was made, notified the boys before serving the warrants. He was a patriotic man, and after telling them how to avoid conviction and a long term in the penitentiary, kindly suggested that his Uncle Sam needed men. If they would enlist at once, he would call the suit off and not serve the warrants of arrest. The boys held a meeting and agreed to follow his advice to enlist immediately. The 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, then being recruited among the writer's neighbors, was chosen by him for his future military career. 
That evening he went home and told his mother what he had done. His mother and sisters at first were grief-stricken and wept at the prospect of his departure for the scenes of war, but they soon became reconciled, especially as the warrants for the arrest of the boys were dropped. The mother and sisters at once set about getting things ready for the writer's subsequent three years' experience of army life. It is interesting to the writer to recall how, in their love and affection and in their ignorance of a soldier's wants, they went about this work. A homespun blanket was deemed indispensable. Next, two suits of underwear, four pairs of woolen socks, new shoes, box of blacking and brush, half-dozen handkerchiefs, two bars of homemade soap, each the size of a brick, were next added to his stock. These were followed by a half-dozen collars, neckties, looking-glass a foot square, razor, strop, brush, and shaving mug. This latter tickled the writer's boyhood pride, for he hadn't the sign of a hair on his face. The shaving outfit, however, mother and sisters thought he would require before the end of his three years enlistment. A box of pens, a small Morocco portfolio filled with paper and merchandise followed. Fine homemade pies, made from the stolen berries the boys had picked a few days before, were next contributed, together with a small sugar-cured ham and several links of bologna sausage. One of his girlfriends also presented him with a photograph album with spaces for 25 pictures. The album was filled before the writer left home with photographs and tintypes of friends. Before his departure, a horse pistol and a large bowie knife were also presented to him by friends. Armed for the Fray On a Tuesday morning, September 1st, 1862, with some friends, the writer of veritable arsenal and commissary train combined, embarked at Elizabeth on the boat for Pittsburgh. On arriving in the city, a wagon was hired by the writer to take his baggage to Camp Howe, then three miles out of Pittsburgh. Here the boys received their uniforms, and the writer had his picture taken with knapsack, bowie knife, and revolvers with which to kill Jeff Davis. Got orders next day to pack up and leave for Washington. The march from Camp Howe into the city, three miles with his heavy knapsack, was the most severe the writer ever experienced. He fell out of the ranks a half-dozen times, overcome with fatigue and the heat, and finally took a bob-tailed horse car part of the journey. Then came the first tug-of-war for the writer, who looked and felt like an Arabian pack-peddler. September 4th, the regiment arrived at Harrisburg and marched to Camp Curtin to get guns and ammunition. The regiment then took the cars for Washington, D.C., and hurried across the Potomac, lying in camp on Arlington Heights for a few days, doing guard and picket duty. Standing in line in Washington, awaiting orders for the march, Captain J.B. Sackett, of Company E, viewing the writer's immense knapsack and packages, said, quote, Young man, you had better go and see if you can get a commissary wagon to haul your goods, unquote. Nevertheless, the regiment got started. After much labor, the guns were loaded on the march to Antietam. The 155th arrived at Antietam installments the next day, the day after the great battle, having marched all day and night to reach the battlefield in time. The regiment was new, 
composed of very fresh troops, and forced marching with heavy knapsacks and guns and sixty rounds of cartridges in extremely hot weather, was a severe ordeal. The enemy was driven south and back to Virginia by McClellan's army, leaving behind them their dead and wounded. The regiment settled down to camp life and picket duty on the Potomac and Camp Macaulay, for some weeks following near Sharpsburg. Whilst lightening his heavy load on the forced march, the rider called in consultation a few comrades, among them being Private John Crookham of Company E. As a result of the conference, the boys concluded to hide their knapsacks with their valuable contents by burying them in the thick woods they were passing through. They dropped out of the ranks long enough to dig a pit and to bury both knapsacks and their valuable contents, and covered the same with leaves. They noted the place, hoping, after annihilating Lee's army, to return that way and recover them. So far as the deponent knows, they are still hidden, and bid fair to remain buried there until the Resurrection Day, when Crookham and the writer expect to be on hand to claim the valuable contents. In the greys of these knapsacks were included the tin types of their best girls, also the razor, brush, and other articles too numerous to mention. Gone, but not forgotten. How I Found My Regiment By W. Stockton Wilson, Assistant Surgeon In the summer of 1862, the whole North was aflame with patriotic fervor. The disastrous battles of the peninsula had ended in the, quote, change of base, unquote, of the Army of the Potomac, from the James River to the defenses of Washington, which was threatened by Lee's army. Hope had superseded McClellan in command, and a call for 300,000 additional troops had been made by the president. In every town and hamlet of our state, Men were being enlisted, and companies were organizing to fill the state's quota of troops. And the war fever was high. Every county's neighborhood and every village already had many of their young men at the front. And now there was a call for still more men. In the year preceding, I had graduated from a medical college and had now been in the practice of my profession for about a year in a small village in the western part of the state and was doing very well in a business way. But up to this time, I had not thought seriously of entering the army. One day, early in September, in looking over a Pittsburgh paper, I read an announcement that an examination would be held in Harrisburg on September 11th of candidates for appointment in the medical department of the state troops, which were then being organized. I thought the matter over carefully that day and night, and without consultation with any of my family, who were many miles away, I started for Harrisburg the next day, and arrived there on the night preceding the examination. This was held in the hall of the House of Delegates in the old state house, and there were probably about a hundred medical men from all parts of the state as candidates for appointment. The examination dragged through the entire day and evening until about nine o'clock, when the announcement was made that the papers would be examined and the results would be known by the following night, and also that a number of commissions would be issued immediately to any who would be able to go into the field at once. On the morning of the third day, I called at the office of the Surgeon General and found that I was one of those who had passed, and, after some little conversation, 
he told me that he could assign me to the 155th Regiment, which was organized in Pittsburgh, and was from my section of the state. I expressed my entire satisfaction with the assignment, and he gave me a letter to the United States Mustering Officer requesting that I be mustered in at once as Assistant Surgeon of the 155th Regiment. In company with several others who had been appointed that morning, I was mustered in about noon, and the rest of the day we spent in changing our citizens' dress to what we conceived to be the uniform of an assistant surgeon. That night, about ten o'clock, in company with Dr. S., a young man from my own county who had been appointed to one of the nine months' regiments, I started for Washington, which we reached, after a tiresome journey, about eight o'clock the next morning. Together we went to Kirkwood House for breakfast, after which we hunted up the provost marshal's office to learn where our regiments were encamped. We were directed to a camp near Alexandria, towards which place we were soon on our way by way of the ferry, provided with a provost marshal's pass. The day was passed in a fruitless search, and towards evening we returned to Washington, tired and footsore to pass the night. The next day's search around the fortifications of Washington was without result. But, as we had left our hand baggage at the hotel, we were relieved of that burden. We were finally informed at the War Department that our commands were on the march to join the Army of the Potomac in northern Maryland. A relative of mine, who had lived in Washington for a number of years, told me that he personally knew a market man who brought produce to the city every week, who lived near Frederick City and that he would start for home late that afternoon. We hunted him up, and he agreed to take me with him as far as he went. Dr. S. concluded to stay in Washington until he could locate his regiment more definitely. But I took my seat in the wagon, and we started on our journey. That night we stopped in the village of Rockville, where I slept in a comfortable bed in the hotel with the driver. After breakfast next morning we started again. Before noon, we had overtaken the crowd of stragglers that usually follows in the rear of a marching column. The sun was hot, the air was filled with dust, and the road was strewn with blankets, overcoats, and the other personal belongings of the tired-out soldiers. By noon, we could hear the sound of heavy firing towards the river northward, indicating that a battle was in progress. We forged ahead steadily, and towards nightfall, we arrived in the neighborhood of the driver's home which was about a mile off the main road. He invited me to go with him and spend the night, but I determined to go ahead and try to overtake the regiment, which was by this time, I had learned from some soldiers, was not far ahead of me, and I would soon come upon it in camp. Taking my hand trunk, I started off on foot, and, after walking a few miles, I crossed the Mononocacy River, and almost immediately came upon some troops in a field just off the road. I soon learned that my regiment was in the camp, and was conducted to it by an obliging young soldier, who said that he belonged to it. By this time it was quite dark, and my guide led me to a group of officers who were standing around a brightly blazing fire, one of whom the young soldier said was the colonel. With my hand trunk in my grasp, and with a light linen duster over my uniform, we walked up to the group, and I asked for Colonel Allen. A bright-eyed, black-whiskered officer, wrapped in an army overcoat, rose from a cracker box on which he was seated, saying that he was Colonel Allen. I told him that I had been ordered to report to him, but gave no further explanation. 
Introduction to Colonel Allen He looked at me for a moment, and as my garb did not indicate that I was a soldier, he supposed, as he afterwards told me, that I was a citizen sent to place him under arrest, and that my conductor was a guard. All right, said the colonel, we will take care of you. And he directed a young officer near him to take charge of me. The officer came over to where I was standing, and I said to him that I had been looking for the regiment for several days, and was quite relieved to find it, and that I had been appointed to it as assistant surgeon. This announcement changed matters considerably, and my reception by the group of officers was most cordial. This was my introduction to Colonel Allen and Adjutant Montooth. The adjutant sent for Hospital Steward Thorne, and I went off with him to his quarters. As I had fared pretty sumptuously during the day while on the wagon, I was not suffering from hunger. But Thorne made me a cup of coffee and set up his hardtack for an evening meal. This was my first taste of army fare. After I had eaten, he made a bed for me and himself on the floor of a little two-wheeled ambulance, in which he was carrying a few medical supplies. Before going to bed for the night, we sat by the fire and talked, endeavoring to become acquainted. In a short time, the camp quieted down, and we crawled into the ambulance to sleep. The floor was hard, and we had only one blanket under us. In order to be sure that he would still have his horse in the morning, Thorne had tied him to a wheel of the ambulance and had thrown some hay before him on the ground. The flies or mosquitoes were annoying him, and he kept up a continual stamping on the ground and pulling at the halter so that the ambulance was almost constantly in motion, making sleep impossible. Finally, tired out and exhausted, I dropped into a doze, and I did not awaken until Thorn called me in the morning. I got up feeling sore and unrefreshed, and, washing my face and hands in a camp kettle, sat down to wait for breakfast which Thorn and some helpers, which he had gathered about him, were endeavoring to prepare. While waiting... A tall, grayish, mustached officer came up to me and greeted me pleasantly, saying that he had heard that the doctor had arrived and that he had come to call on him. After a little conversation, he invited me to go with him for breakfast, as he had more hardtack than he could eat at one meal. I thanked him and went with him, and enjoyed the breakfast as much as was possible for one not accustomed to army rations, but I appreciated still more the warm, generous heart that thought of me in my isolation. As long as he lived, he was one of my warmest friends. And it was with a heavy heart, on a June night almost two years afterwards, that I helped to lay Captain Samuel A. McKee, of Company I, in his grave in a field near the roadside in front of Petersburg. Captain McKee died leading the regiment in a forlorn hope charge on the enemy's works, June 18, 1864. First Sick Call, or Faith Cure After breakfast, the sick call was sounded, and soon a number of soldiers were brought by their first sergeants to the medical quarters, which was the little ambulance. In looking over the stock of medicine that had been supplied to the regiment, I found that the variety was rather limited. Most of the sickness so far among the men was such as is occasioned by the use of improper or badly cooked food or from exposure to the weather. I listened to all of their complaints with the patient of a new beginner, and prescribed for their ailments to the best of my ability from the limited supply of medicines. Although, I fear, 
that sometimes the one who was suffering from digestive disorder would get his medicine from the same bottle as the man who was complaining of rheumatism. The next day was fought the Battle of Antietam, and late that afternoon we were ordered to march. We passed through Frederick City just before nightfall, and soon we commenced the toilsome march up the South Mountain, which, I think, not one of those who was there will ever forget. The road was crowded with troops, and the progress was slow. Thorne was driving the little one-horse ambulance, and he had it pretty well filled with the knapsacks and other accoutrements of tired-out soldiers, and soon on top of them were stowed four or five men who thought riding would be preferable to walking. The horse was overburdened, and the fagged-out animal could scarcely pull the load. I begged the men to get out and walk, but they would not move. Finally, I told Thorne to stop by the roadside and go forward besides the horse. I unbuckled the belly band of the harness and tilted the ambulance, and all the contents were spilled out as from a cart. We told the passengers that the harness was broken and that we would have to stay where we were until morning. In a short time, the men concluded not to wait and started on their weary climb up the mountain. After an hour's rest, we replaced the load on the ambulance and resumed the march, overtaking the regiment some time in the morning near the Antietam Creek. During the day, the regiment was kept almost constantly on the move and under arms, and that night we slept on the ground on the bloody field of Antietam. A few days' picket duty along the river followed, upon the termination of which we went into camp, sleeping mostly on the ground and with no shelter at night or day but the sky above us. Many succumbed to disease, and the facilities for taking care of the sick were but meager. Barns and farmhouses were filled with the wounded, who were removed as rapidly as possible to the general hospitals in the northern cities, but their places were rapidly taken by the sick, and when the army moved across the river in October, I was one of the number left behind in a farmhouse sick with malarial fever. When I rejoined the regiment a few weeks later, they were encamped near Warrington Junction. From that time onward, my service with the regiment was almost continuous, until after the capture of the Weldon Railroad in the fall of 1864. Soon after which, I was promoted and assigned to the 210th Pennsylvania Regiment as surgeon. Out of the shadowy past come many memories some tinged with sadness, but many that are pleasant. And I shall always feel the pride that each one of us shares that we were members of the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers. And that is the end of today's episode. We will pick up right where we left off next week with the curiously named The Rise and Fall of an Orderly by Private John T. Porter of Company H next week, and the saga that begins with that. But there are um, there are a few things that I want to talk about with this episode. Most importantly, obviously one of the big players who takes uh, a large role in it is Colonel Allen of the 155th. Obviously, if you've been to my website or my YouTube channel, you see that he plays a very big part in the content that I've made so far. And I have directed you guys a few times throughout the works that I've done to either go read his work or go listen to it, because some of it I have recorded and published on the YouTube channel. 
So for some of you who have heard his prose on slavery and the Civil War, which is titled A Civil War Prose on Slavery by Colonel E.J. Allen, you can go listen to at the very beginning of this work, which they call The Colonel's Tribute by Colonel Edward J. Allen, is only a small portion of the entire work that he did on his Civil War prose on slavery. So if you want to go listen to that whole section, if you go to my website or the YouTube channel, you can find it. But under this section of this week's posting, I will post the entire YouTube video. So you can just click on it and it'll take you to the YouTube channel and then you can listen to it. You'll recognize that the very beginning of what I've read here is also on there, but then it goes on for about another 20 minutes. It's quite good. I really enjoyed being able to record it. And also, O veteran in whose gleaming eyes the glory of the past doth shine, in coming years the grandest prize, a nation's reverence shall be thine, is also from a poem that he wrote that is much longer, which is also one of the contributed works that I was able to record and publish as well. So if you want to hear his entire poem, that will also be posted under here. And of course, you can find it on the YouTube channel as just one of his poems that he did. So moving on from all of the content that the Colonel has made us and some of the great parts where he <laughs> keeps popping up, obviously having a very important role in the beginning of the regiment, essentially all the way up until the Battle of Gettysburg, which he is present for, but essentially unable to take part in. Moving on, though, let's talk about breaking home ties with Private Thomas E. Morgan of Company E. Being charged with picking berries on forbidden ground is not something I would think that you would find anymore. Saying join the military or <laughs> uh, or else over picking berries. Hmm. Although we know not really recently anymore. I don't think the military does it as much, but... The 70s and 80s, maybe the 90s, of people being told, hey, you can go to jail, you can join the military. I'm not sure it's very prevalent anymore, but I find it funny that the practice has... They were definitely taking advantage of these young boys, for sure. It's 100%. But his mother and his friends giving him all of the things that he's going to need for his military career... First of all, it's got some great pictures that were drawn of what this guy looks like. There's only a handful of pictures, but they're all really great. So come check them out on the website. And I really enjoy. We get a very descriptive list of everything that he took. The blanket, the socks, shoes, underwear, soap, <laughs> weapons, razors, just the list goes on and on and on and on and. You know, in modern infantry, there's a set list that you have to take that you can't get rid of. And then anything that you want to personally take after that just is added additional weight. But since we're talking about, you know, your bare minimum of weight that you're carrying on any operation is going to be 50 pounds. And then you're just working your way up when you're already at like a 90 pound pack and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to throw some pogey bait in there. I want some pretzels or Gatorade or something like that. It's uh, It just becomes, you know, at that point, you're just like, who cares? But for this guy, oh, it's really funny because they had to, and I guess the difference is between 
the difference now is being motorized infantry versus having to walk everywhere with your feet. And I'd be curious to see what it looks like for Ukrainian infantry right now who are in their eastwards counteroffensive. What are the things that they're carrying? What has been stripped down? Because they're carrying a lot of American equipment right now or NATO allied equipment. I'd be curious to see, since Ukrainian infantry are humping a lot of miles right now, I'd be curious to see what their loadouts look like. So maybe we'll get that in the future. I know some of it is pretty easy to do because they post videos on Twitter and YouTube and other places, Reddit, for example, but not a whole lot of them are like, hey, this is everything that I'm carrying in my backpack. So we'll see. Hopefully, if I can find something, I'll, I'll post it to the website. It'd be pretty interesting. So an interesting account for sure, you know, and them having to bury <laughs> all of their stuff afterwards and being like, you know, after we beat Lee's army, we'll come back and get it all. That's a hundred percent like a brand new recruits thinking. Oh man. Hopefully someday someone finds it and they're just like, oh, this amazing treasure trove of civil war artifacts. <laughs> That's oh, all right. The assistant surgeon Stockton Wilson going on an odyssey to try and find his regiment. Man, it's, this is really great getting to see all of these little personal stories and how they weave together with the fabric of the mythos of this regiment makes it like, Hey, this is how I found Colonel Allen. He was sitting on a box of uh, army crackers and also how different that is in today's military. I don't think any commanding officer of any regiment, every time he meets a brand new person ever expects to be arrested and relieved of command. But We've heard that many times. I think it was General Meade when he was woken up in the middle of the night to be told when he was the new commander of the Army of the Potomac, he also thought he was getting arrested. So I'm certainly glad our military has changed, that's for sure. I think when people say that they want to go like old core or back to the hardcore way that things used to be, I don't think this is what they have in mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I'm glad we've moved past that. But with that, my friends, we'll do as far as these stories are done. There's not a lot of them, but there's a lot of them. We'll have a couple weeks worth. We'll do, I'll cover three stories every episode, depending upon length and quality. Some of them are much longer than others. For many of you, I can see you in my downloads. All right. I'm having a huge wave of brand new listeners coming in and just, it's really blown up. So thank you for coming in and listening, you know, here in October of 2022, I really appreciate it. And yeah, I, I just, it's blowing me away that so many people are so interested and thank you for your emails and your messages and your comments. By all means, please remember to like and subscribe. <laughs> my YouTube channel, become a subscriber. You don't always have to come for the game stuff. You might just be there for the poetry stuff or just the story stuff or just some of the books I'll be recording. There's just a lot of content that's always, I always have something coming out every week for the YouTube channel. And of course, the weekly podcast as well. Just a reminder though, however, is that 
the Patreon the Patreon episode for Company K's company history is coming out this weekend as well. So remember, that's only $1 a month. You can check it out if you like. And you can give me any reviews on whatever podcasting host that you happen to be using, whether it's Amazon or Apple or Google or... But one note that I did want to talk about, which I think is really cool and really fills me with pride, is this is now a truly global podcast, as I have had downloads on every continent except for Antarctica. And that includes more than 30 countries and 700 cities and towns. It just... It blows me away. Thank you for your immense support. I know for a lot of you, it's just listening, but it really means a lot to me to just keep going. Like This is just something I, I really enjoy doing, and I'm glad I get to do it for the rest of my life. So thank you for listening. It, it means so much to me. But all right. With that, friends, thank you for all your support. Come check out the website at rebellionstories.com and some of the very adorable pictures that were included in these short stories, and I'll see you in the next episode. Old John Brown's Bye-bye, body friends. lies a-moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, for his soul is marching on. John Brown was a hero, undaunted, true and brave And Kansas knew his valor when he fought her rights to save And now, though the grass grows green above his grave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah He captured Harper's Ferry with us, 19 men so few, and frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew, but a soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. For his soul is marching on. John Brown was 
John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see Christ who of the bondman shall the liberator be And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free For his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah soul is marching on The conflict that he heralded He looked from heaven to view On the army of the Union With its flag red, white, and blue And heaven shall sing with anthems Or the deed they mean to do For his soul Marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah For a soul is marching on Soldiers of freedom, then strike while strike ye may The death blow of oppression in a better time and way The dawn of old John Brown has brightened in the day And his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Cheers.